Hello and welcome back to the latest Arcadis Hat podcast. It's Adrian here. I've got a really big treat for you today. I'm talking Trip Hawkins, one of the biggest names in the video game industry. He founded Electronic Arts, he made the 3DO console and lots more in between. So sit back and enjoy a great interview with a real retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. So welcome back, listeners, to the latest Arcade Attack podcast. I've got a true gaming legend with me today, a real, I say, a pioneer in the industry. I've got Trip Hawkins. So really appreciate your time today, Trip. Thank you. Um, I mean, Trip, you've had quite a remarkable career. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Um, it didn't happen by accident, I'm, I'm sure, by that. How does someone like you figure out how to do all the kind of things that you did all the obstacles that you come up with and always sort of come up on top kind of thing well you know it's a really good question and i've had enough time over the course of my life to think about it and on hindsight that i kind of had this thing in early childhood that uh ultimately explains kind of who i am intrinsically what kind of abilities and traits that I was born with and how I was shaped by the culture that I uh, was born into. Yep. And I'm you know, very fortunate to be in California where uh, you know, pioneering and innovation has been a thing for quite a while. And as a, as a child, I was uh, discovering team sports on television, like football and baseball, and fell in love and I, I realize now that uh, there, were, there were strategic aspects and gameplay aspects that uh, really intrigued me. And I loved the idea of uh, the kind of systems and st- strategy in those sports. And I really wanted to get more involved in it. And so I actually uh, uh, started playing more board games and noticed something really, really profound and fundamental about play. Uh, I just realized that, wow, my brain is way more switched on when I'm playing than when I'm reading or when I'm watching television. And I, was, I just kind of stumbled into a really core truth that we uh, learn by doing. Mm. And then I found that uh, what I really wanted to do more than anything was manage a football team or manage a baseball team and get to choose the strategies and, and to uh, really – get to decide how to utilize uh, the uh, resources in a game like that, particularly the ones that involve my personal hero on television. Yeah. So that was a very powerful idea. And I'm realizing that as a kid, and this is way before there's any computers. And of course I was drawn to uh, whatever card games, board games in particular, there was one uh, board game that had spinners and you could actually have Babe Ruth, and he had a little uh, paper disc that you would fit around the spinner, and then you'd uh, uh, you know use your finger to get the spinner to go round and round and round. And and he had a big pie slice uh, for a home run, and he had another big pie slice for a strikeout because those were the two things uh, that were the most likely to happen with Babe Ruth. And it was really my 
first experience was something where real heroes were baked into a game yeah and real statistics and attributes of those players were baked into a game and i totally fell in love with that so it it's, it's one of these things where i know i'm a very competitive person i know i'm a strategic thinker i'm tough i know i'm very determined and as a child it's it's really valuable uh, when a child is able to notice things about themselves that they can tune into that reflect who they really are at mm. a deeper level and to then tie it into something that they are genuinely discovered on their own uh, and that they're making a free will choice to fall in love with. And that was the love affair. Oh, brilliant. Oh, really? That's a great answer. Um, you, you actually mentioned that you didn't, it took, you know, you, you got involved in this kind of play before computers. Do you remember the first time you played a game on a computer and, and, and maybe how did you think from day one it could lead into a proper career? Well, you know, we all, we all remember the uh, historically famous original version of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which uh, many of us have actually played. And of course, uh, ever since computers came along, uh, you know, we've been making role-playing games, building on the principles of that original D&D game. Mm. That game was really complicated. It, you had to be a super geek to play it. And, and I, got, I got into that, and, and frankly, uh, uh, I, I ended up not just enjoying being a player, but I really enjoyed being a dungeon master and kind of running the games with friends and then later doing it for my children. Uh, I, I've had a number of uh, children where uh, the, the theme of the party was uh, my dad's going to be the dungeon master and we're going to do D&D. Nice. So I still, love, I still love games like that that are just paper, dice, you know, et cetera. But I really got into the sports versions of those, and that's that's where I began to think, dang, um, you know, I could make games like this that are even better, and I want all my friends to play with me. And here's what I noticed, is that they didn't all want to do it. In the same way that I think we as hardcore gamers today, we all know that not everybody wants to play hardcore games. Not everybody mm. wanted to put up with the uh, administrative burden and the research and studying required to play that original D&D. And what I noticed is uh, I'd try to get friends to play these games before computers showed up, and a lot of them would drift back to preferring to just watch television or go play outside. And, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California. The sun's out, and my mother's always saying, why don't you go outside and play? And I'm thinking, no, I'm really happy sitting at this table playing this really super geeky uh, <laughs> card game. <laughs> But I couldn't get all the other friends to do it. And I thought about it for a while. I realized, you know, it's just too much administration. There's just too much of an apparatus here mm. that you have to get into. And if you're not really into statistics and, and all these design features and the details of resource uh, attributes and management, it's a lot. It's mm. a lot for the public to deal with. And then I, I watched them drifting over to the television. I thought, you know. Uh, what we're going to have to do eventually is use computers to put it in a box and put nice pictures on, on the screen like television. Yeah. And I began to have that understanding as a teenager, as I began to hear about it, and as I was watching through the golden age of television, uh, why television was so powerful. And, and then to answer your question, um, my, uh, my father worked in a technology company in San Diego, and one of his colleagues was a really, really brilliant engineer who would later join one of the very first arcade game companies and become their, their leading designer. 
And I know in Europe, everybody remembers the Nokia phones with Snake, mm. the Snake game. Yeah. Well, uh, this guy, Lane Haug, uh, there was a colleague and a friend of my father's. He invented that game genre. The first version of it, he called Blockade. And basically, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're playing against a, an opponent or against the computer where you're trying to snake your way around uh, the screen. And as you're going, you're building a wall that you're trying to get the other guy to run into. And he's building a wall that he's trying to get you to run into. So Snake evolved uh, from this original invention of Lades. But it was a few years before even happened. And Lane went and bought a hobby kit of a PDP-8 computer. Yeah. And this was a, a black box with a bunch of flashing lights and switches on it. It didn't look anything like a, a, a you know, conventional a display it didn't even have a display it didn't have a keyboard and he uh, hooked what was known as a ksr 33 teletype terminal up to it and it had this scroll of yellow paper and it was a little bit like a clunky typewriter and you could uh, type on this mechanical keyboard and it would strike the paper and and then you could talk to this little black box that he had the pdp8 and it could send a stream of characters that would get printed out on the yellow roll. And uh, so Lane paid thousands of dollars. I mean, if, I think if you adjust for inflation, he probably paid over $10,000 for this wow. PDP-8 toy and had to assemble it. But the guy was a genius, and he did that. And then he designed a really simple game that interacted with the uh, teletype terminal where you were basically putting in four uh, letters or numbers in uh, trying to guess the four letters and numbers that the uh, computer was thinking of and trying to see how many tries it would take you to do that. And uh, it's a basically the uh, same game. There's a board game version of this that's been around for a while called Mastermind. It's that kind of gameplay mechanic. Yep. Anyway, uh, so this all happened around 1970. So this is before arcade games, before uh, computer hobby kit, a video game console. This <laughs> is before everything. And, and my dad and I went over to Lane's house, and I saw this, and I go, okay, that's how I'm going to do it. Mm. This is it. This is the beginning of it. It's really going to happen. And I kind of crafted the next uh, 12 years of my life to planning and preparing to start Electronic Arts based, based on that moment. Wow. You're thinking that far ahead. That's great. That's amazing. Um... Yeah, I have to say that that's probably the only time in my life that I've had that clear a picture mm. of something that was 20 or 30 years in the future that I just absolutely knew was going to happen, that I knew was going to take a long time. You know, there's a lot of uh, things that people will say, uh, oh, yeah, it's a it's a 10-year overnight success. You know, there a lot of good things really do take time, and I knew it was going to happen, and I knew it was going to take time, and I knew I'd better start preparing. Good stuff. I mean one way to prepare for that was to work for one of the most well now arguably the biggest company in the world apple how how did you get the opportunity and do you did you work closely with steve jobs and steve wozniak and how how did that help mold your career yeah well you know i'm i'm really more than anything i'm a software guy and i'm a marketing guy those are the uh mm. that i think i'm the the best trained in i'm also a good strategist i've never been a good engineer even to this day, if you, if you explain the laws of physics to me, I'm going to understand them when you explain it. And then by next month, I'm going to forget. Mm. 
I still don't really understand exactly how electricity works. To me, it's just, you know, what the military used to call FM, which is, you know, friggin' magic. <laughs> so I, I, I know how to work with hardware people, and I developed that in my career. But I really just want to be able to use the hardware to make games. That's, yeah. That was really my goal. But back in the uh, 70s, I realized that, you know, I had actually, in fact, made a uh, football game that was very much like the D&D equivalent of American football. And I borrowed $5,000 from my dad and I'd lost every penny of it. And I was, uh, I was very uh, disappointed creatively that the world had not adopted my, my little invention. Mm. But I got really good feedback from the customers that I did have. And of course, I just didn't have enough money or time to really turn it into a real business. But I love the experience. And that's, that's again, where I discovered the dang. Uh, I find it irresistible to be an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this again, but I don't want to have a disappointing outcome the next time and prepare for it properly. Yeah. Again, this is part of that you know, 10-year period where I was working my way up to uh, starting Electronic Arts. And I realized that before there would be this possibility of selling any software, there would have to be hardware in homes. Mm. And that before I was going to start my company, I needed to go work somewhere else and learn how to do it by watching them do it. And it was going to have to be a pretty capable company because I wanted it to be well-led and a market, a market leader mm. and you know, be a great learning environment for myself. And I realized I'm not going to be able to get a job in that business as an engineer. That's not who I am. So how am I going to get in the door? And this may seem kind of funny, but in the mid-70s, I'm basically finishing school at Stanford, and I'm, I'm realizing that I, I realized I could get a job in a market research firm, and I could actually convince them to let me write a study that they could publish to their clients about personal computers. And I went and talked to this market research firm about it, and uh, they uh, eventually allowed me to do it, and it became their best-selling study. But it's funny because when I brought it up for the first time, which was uh, in, uh, I think, 1977, I brought this up, and they said, what's a personal computer? I mean, they just didn't even know what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> of course, uh, I had uh, already started to investigate it and had you know, discovered the, this early you know, homebrew uh, hardware phase, and I, I explained it to the head of this uh, market research firm, and he he kind of poo-pooed and said, well, you know, we've got all these big corporations and, you know, uh, companies that are subscribers to our services and none of them have any interest in that topic. You know, there, there's no mm -hmm. demand for that. So I had to do another study that they wanted to kind of prove my chops. And by the time I finished that later that year, they had heard enough about personal computing that they began to think that, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, let's do this. And that became my calling card. And I got that study finished. And I, you know, when, when you're doing a study like that and you're working for a firm like that, you can call up these companies and they'll say, well, who the heck are you? And I say, well, I'm from this research company. I'm doing this study and we'd love to have you participate. And of course, their response is going to be, why should we do that? Mm. Well, because potential investors read our study. The media is going to read our study. Partners with read our study. It could help you raise money, help you get new business relationships, help you get media coverage you know, help you get uh, recommendations to investors. And then, oh, okay, fine, uh, come on in. So I actually got inside Apple yep. uh, back in, uh, and of course I went to the first West 
that was in the spring of uh, 77. And then towards the end of that year or early next year, I forget exactly when, uh, I got a meeting with one of the handful of uh, office workers there. It was a really, really dinky company. You know, at that time, maybe there were uh, 20 employees total. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, asked the questions I need to ask. And uh, uh, the, the funniest thing about that meeting was that uh, the relatively junior guy that I was talking to, I asked him, so are you guys doing any software? Because, of course, that's my interest, right? Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, we have a software department. Let me show you. And then, we, then he takes me around the corner. And it's exactly one guy, a guy that I would get to know well named Randy Wigginton. And Randy was basically working on a really primitive uh, Star Wars uh, shooter game uh, without having a Star Wars license. And I remember, you know, the next year I'm, I'm showing this game as part of our booth at CES. And, and a guy from uh, 20th Century Fox comes up and gives me this business card and says, you're going to have to stop. <laughs> So it was, these were the real cowboy uh, days of the industry. But uh, I, I was able to cover Apple in this study, and I put out a, a little flyer about the study that I mailed out to all of the people that I knew, you know, went to the um, research company, and I sent it to all the uh, companies that had been kind enough to uh, let me interview them. Mm. And then uh, I'm, I'm at home one day in the, uh, I guess, early maybe late winter, early spring of uh, 1978. And the phone rings and this guy starts yelling at me and he's complaining about what I said about Radio Shack in, this, uh, in the flyer. Yeah. And, uh, and then I realized that I am talking to Steve Jobs. Wow. And he's gotten my number from a friend and he had, you know, this flyer had come in and it got passed around by the, uh, executives at Apple and the founders and I was the flyer was basically saying that the market share leader was Radio Shack well that was a fact that was true mm. Apple didn't want people to know it was true so I'm basically a problem <laughs> <laughs> I'm creating a problem and I shifted the uh, phone conversation after having to hold the phone about two feet away from my ear to, until he calmed down basically explaining, hey, uh, the study's finished and I thought you'd want to uh, know about it and I'd be happy to bring it in and show it to you and let mm -hmm. you take a free look at what I said about Apple because I think you'll be very pleased. But he, you know, he was upset because they were actually running uh, an ad saying that Apple was the best-selling personal computer. Uh, and it wasn't true. Again, part of the cowboy period here of uh, hyperbole and <laughs> uh, they're just being fast and furious. And that study, if you adjust for inflation in today's dollars, it would probably cost about $3,000. And yeah. Apple didn't have that kind of money to spend on a research report. So Steve was delighted that I was willing to bring it in and let him, let him you know, take a peek. And, and then I just casually mentioned that uh, I, was, I was looking for a job in the industry. So I ended up going in and I meet the founders and I, and I uh, uh, get them all excited. And that's how I got the job offer. That's amazing. That's a great uh, trip. I really appreciate you telling us that story. Um, how do you look back at your time at Apple? You were there for a, a number of years, and it, was it always at the back of your mind though to start Electronic Arts? Was it? Were you ever tempted to say, "Nope, I'm really happy at Apple"? Or were you always still certain to move? Well, I had such a great time at Apple, and when I first went in there, you know, I was pretty young, inexperienced, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'll be here for about a year. And that first year was maybe the best uh, time 
that I had there. It was a, an incredible time. When I started there, there were about 25 office workers and about 25 people in line assembling uh, the product kind of in a back room. So it was really, really tiny uh, space. You know, we, we pretty much all sat, you know, little cubbies, you know, you know, fairly intimate office space. And I always worked very closely with the founders and, you know, was, was friends with them. And, you know, I was always in the room when all the uh, important decisions were made. And it was, it was genuinely an incredibly exciting place to be and a great learning curve. And there were really talented people there that were very passionate and you just couldn't ask for a better, better learning environment and growth environment for someone who wants to start a company and you know, be able to run it effectively. It was an incredible training ground. And so I ended up sticking around for four years. And by that time, you know, we're a billion dollar revenue run rate company. We're a publicly traded fortune 500 company with 4,000 employees. And that was just an incredible uh, experience to be part of because it happened so fast. I used to say that it was World War One biplane flying Mach two, yeah, with the with the canvas just peeling off the wings, and just <laughs> everything was happening so quickly. And so you had a, you had a better learning curve because instead of it taking twenty years to learn all of the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly about all the decisions and all the people and all the the relationships and all of the uh, strategies. Situations, it was unfolding at just a breakneck speed, and of course, I I got a clinic of knowledge about how to deal with a high growth environment like that, and and then it just made it that much easier to deal with uh, everything that was going to happen at Electronic Arts. Brilliant. Just before we get into Electronic Arts, um, Steve Jobs. I mean, obviously, you've probably worked with some of the most important pioneers in technology. Where where do you rank Steve Jobs? Did he have that kind of aura that people perceive? I mean, how, how would you view him looking back at him? I, I've been saying this for years that in 500 years, he's the only guy that history will remember from this time period. Wow. I, I think he's that important. I mean, if, if the way I think the way he's going to be remembered by the historians is that before Steve Jobs, uh, computers were only used by gigantic scientific laboratories and gigantic companies to do their accounting. They were not something that the public uh, had any real fear because you were, you were maybe getting a bill in the mail that a computer said you owed that was wrong and there was nothing you were going to be able to do to fix it. You know, we, we, we were alienated from computers and look at how that changed because of Steve's vision mm. Determination and his genius, the, the first most important part of his genius was having a feel for what it's like being an everyday person and working with a really advanced technology and how to tame that uh, experience. So he always just had really brilliant judgment about that. And he was a fearless thought leader about it and very demanding about it. And it was great to uh, collaborate with someone like that. And I uh, obviously uh, appreciate and admire also just the sheer uh, determination that he that he always had, mm. and you know obviously he took it maybe to an unhealthy degree. So there's the famous uh, dark side uh, that he had, and I understand some of the background reasons about uh, you know the, the the fact that he had been you know given up for adoption, and he mm. never really got over that. And uh, that that's that's really what the dark side was about. You know, people in the 
even in the late 70s, people would have a meeting with they, they sort of looked at me as the uh, person who was the most like Steve, but that was actually sane. <laughs> and and they would uh, come to me after they've had their first meeting with Steve and say, what is the deal with that guy? I mean, they were, they were just so terrified yeah. and so freaked out. And I would say to them, even 40 years ago, I was saying, here's the deal. He was given up. He's so pissed off about it mm. that he's determined to have such an incredible impact on the world that he's going to stand up so far above the rest of humanity that his biological parents, wherever they may be, are going to see him and feel their shame. That's, mm. his, that's his entire purpose. And it pretty much never, it never wavered from that. Uh, he did eventually uh, know where his biological parents were. He reconciled with his mother, but not his father. And I think that if you don't heal around an issue like that, there's an anger inside you mm. that you are directing at yourself. And, and these are, again, layers of identity that we all need to learn how to peel off and understand and bring to the surface because they're operating at a subconscious level. But I'm pretty sure that every time Steve blew up on someone, which he was famous for doing right up until the very end of his life, he was being triggered emotionally by things that were very deep that went back to his childhood. Oh, I really appreciate that. Um, that's some accolade as well you gave him earlier. I think it's well-deserved. Uh, let's, let's talk about electronic arts. Um, I'd love to know the, the, uh, the real early days, the first few months. Was it nervous, excitement? Was it, was it, it's always a risk starting a new business, but how were the first few months? And was electronic arts always the name you were going to give the company? Yeah, the, uh, the very first part was a wonderful honeymoon period. I had had a great career at Apple, and I'm finally ready to do this thing that I've been planning to do for more than 10 years. And here I am at home, and I'm such a hot commodity by that time that, again, uh, the, the phone's ringing in my home, and it's John Doerr, who you know, later became one of the most famous all-time venture capitalists. And he's trying to offer uh, for Kleiner Perkins to invest in whatever it is that I'm planning on doing. And I'm thinking, right. so wow, how did this guy even know that I've left Apple? How does he know that I'm starting something? How could the word have gotten around like that? And how, how, how do these people get my home number? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so I was I was pretty hot, and I uh, I thought, wow, this is really cool. And uh, but at the same time, what that really did was just empower me to stick with my plan and my vision about doing it my way. So I basically just went off on my own, incorporated the company. I, I put my own money into the company, and, and basically, uh, for most of that first year, 1982, I paid for everything. Mm. And, I, and I didn't complete a venture round until December. And uh, basically, I, I was hiring everybody. I was, uh, uh, you know, leading leading everyone and managing the uh, uh, process, running around teed up for the end of the year. And I was getting out there and meeting developers and uh, forging relationships with them. And something else that I do is I, I use the, uh, I actually use the same lawyer that I'd worked with at Apple. And I realized, okay, uh, there's a new business being created here. That's going to basically be a new Hollywood. Mm. And I'm going to have to fuse together some business practices from a uh, software and technology and Silicon Valley thinking. I'm going to fuse that with Hollywood thinking and, and I uh, actually uh, did a, a field trip down to Hollywood to meet a few people that I knew and to learn things and to kind of validate what my theory was about what my, how, how to start the company, what the key strategies would be. Mm -hmm. and, and then one of them actually gave me a sample of a, uh, 
re record industry contract, and I brought that back, and I, I, I started looking at how to mate the kind of software development contracts that we had done at Apple with uh, these uh, music recording contracts into an entirely new kind of agreement. And a lot of this uh, uh, grew out of this uh, fundamental breakthrough idea that I'd gotten while I was still at Apple. I, I had kind of learned from, from uh, my business experience that if you want to start a company, you have the idea that is a breakthrough that's going to allow you to really distinguish yourself as a company in a new way. Yeah, and and uh, with with that uh, uh, in mind, the whole time I'm at Apple, I'm just trying to figure out what's the big idea, what's the big idea, what's that linchpin idea that the entire identity of the company, the culture of the company, the strategy of the company can revolve around. And I, I was working not just with creative people like Steve Jobs, but I'm working with uh, very creative software developers at Apple that are pioneering the uh, brilliant you know desktop metaphor and uh, icons and windows and all of that. We're, we're all doing that together. And that's when I began to realize that these guys are prima donnas. They are divas. They are different kinds of people than just regular people. They need to be managed differently. And if you support them properly, you'll help them bring out their genius. Mm. And I thought that's the big idea. These people are artists. There you just happen to be engineers. So up until that point in time, everybody thinks about art is one thing and engineering is a different thing and never the twain shall meet. And I was the first person to realize, well, you know what? The best artists, I mean, sorry, the best engineers are just like artists. And you've got to really fuse, uh, fuse these uh, ways of thinking disciplines uh, together. And I thought, okay, then uh, the software artist is that linchpin idea. What would be the perfect company to create that the best software artists would want to work with in the way that they're currently picking the record label they want to work with in Hollywood or the studio, the mm -hmm. film studio they want to work with. And that's why I realized I'm, I'm building a new Hollywood. How does that need to work? And of course, I then uh, studied everything I could about uh, Hollywood, reading a bunch of books, talking to anybody I could talk to. And that led to the uh, fundamental strategies that, that I built the company around. So one of those was uh, this idea of the software artist and building a set of services. And you see this even playing out right now in the industry in terms of how channels and publishers are engaging with the indie developers. It's almost like the whole thing is happening again mm. in a new flavor with a lot of the same principles. But uh, I kind of started with that idea, the software artist, you know, building services around that. And then the uh, second big idea related to that was were no good development tools. And so if you were a kid that had uh, the budget in your family that you were able to get an Apple II, you're basically just in a bedroom in a suburban home in California and you're hacking away an assembly code, but you don't have the tools you don't have the equivalent of a studio like Hollywood has. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, let's, let's go make that studio because that'll be one of the major things that would attract these artists is if they believe that we're going to give them the complete set of tools that allow them to be the best at what they do. And so we did that. And then the third element of the strategy was knowing that we're going to be in retail stores, thousands of them, and we're going to uh, need to have as much shelf space and the best merchandising. And the only way to get that and to really understand how to really relate to our customers is to sell directly to retailers and no software company 
had ever done that before. Yeah. So that was a, a really risky, ambitious thing to do. And in fact, in our first year, a lot of our leading competitors that had already gotten out there in the previous year or two uh, thought we would fail because of it. They thought we would get a really severe bloody nose. And, it, <laughs> and indeed, it turned out to be really difficult. So in the honeymoon period, everything's going great because the ideas are powerful. The strategy is powerful. Mm. Investors are offering me money. I've got plenty of uh, interesting people that are willing to come to work for me. And it was it was pretty fun. And I'm signing some really talented people to contracts and we're getting games uh, into development, some of which were absolutely brilliant, mm. including uh, a pinball construction set, which was a real breakthrough idea at the time. The idea of uh, user generated content was kind of born there. The idea of, uh, you know, creativity apps where you get to actually help design the game again was kind of born there. Uh, it's very unusual for a, a game developer to, to have a drawing of their face on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That's a real accomplishment. <laughs> well, Bill Budge got that treatment from the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, there's just a lot of people that recognize what a breakthrough uh, that idea was. So he was a super important guy to uh, win over into uh, what we were doing at EA. Uh, another game that I remember from that first group was Archon, still one of my all-time favorite games. Uh, it really That's a game that really needs to be rebuilt and, mm -hmm. and re, re, relaunched today. It's that good a game. Anyway, it was a really fun period. And then we started shipping products in uh, May of 1983. And within a month, we were way, way, way off our forecast. Uh. And that's when the honeymoon ended. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, oh, my God, and the stress and the pain that, you know, needing to have a layoff and having to just deal with a lot of disappointment, having to confront the fact that not every executive and manager was really doing their job, really willing to communicate effectively and collaborate effectively. And people had to be removed. And you're dealing with a lot of tenderness in your relations with the board of, board of directors and uh, some terror that you're going to run out of money. And, and then the next uh, few years were, in fact, actually quite difficult. And, and then we, you know, gradually kind of clawed our way uh, uh, to become more successful. But the real transformation didn't come until the Sega Genesis. Yeah. Yeah, 100% trip. You guys, uh, Electronic Arts and Mega Drive, Mega Drive for us in the UK, had yes. a great relationship, a really great relationship. Um, also, I, again, I, don't, I know you guys worked on Desert Strike, other games, but it seemed that, was, it, was there a point when you thought sports games? It, was it the Mega Drive, was it the sports game genre? You completely took, took that, that particular genre over. Yeah, well, again, that was my hobby interest. Mm. So you're, you're going back to my childhood ambition thing. I want to I want to control these teams and play with my heroes yeah. and be a hero. So you're talking about a type of product that is a simulation, and I don't care what kind of simulation we're talking about. It can be a flight simulator, it can be a war simulator, it can be a simulation of running a business or building a city or running a sports team. This is where the real power is in yeah. computing for education. If, if if particularly if you're a child, think about it. Uh, Sim City, you're a child and you're going to get to build and run your own city. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. You know, that's way more motivating. And the feedback loop is so great. Compare that to trying to tell a 10 year old to read a book about urban planning. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you got no chance of getting any traction there. 
So I, I just I have always believed that the real power here of, of joining entertainment and education together in simulating things that are exciting mm. to operate and be the person who gets to make decisions about. And of course, that's you know still going on. I think it's represented in most of the good video games. And you know, it's not that I don't care for Candy Crush Saga, but that's a more uh, of an arcade game or. And what I mean by that, it's a form of amusement. Mm. A Candy Crush Saga does not relate to the real world. It's a uh, game mechanic that's kind of arbitrary. It's a clever arrangement of things where you're because you're going to tap on the screen, you're going to press some buttons, you're going to see some animations and sounds. There's a there's a great gameplay mechanic there and a great core loop. But it's just kind of a way to distract yourself and and chew up some time. And certainly in the mobile market, people have a lot of times where they're waiting, want to be able to do something. Mm. It's just for me personally, it was never really about games like that. It was more about games where you're doing something that is a real thing that feels real. Mm. And uh, this includes things that involve fantasy and magic, like Game of Thrones and role playing games. But, you know, if you're going through a dungeon crawl in a role playing game or or if I'm uh, you know, doing something in a science fiction setting. There's still a whole lot of things that feel like authentic human experiences and then involve timeless lessons that you can learn. Yeah. And, and I, I just really cared about the learning power. And so those are, that's what I was drawn to. So the sports thing, it's like if you looked at the original business plan that I wrote most of way back in 1982, there's only one sentence about sports. And I didn't feel like I needed to elaborate because I was just going to do it whether anybody wanted me to do it or not. <laughs> yeah. There were actually there were more sentences about potential market segments like creativity tools and even uh, desktop desktop uh, desktop productivity applications or pure educational applications in schools. There were more words about those things, so I felt like they needed to be explained as in, as part of the broader market. But I, but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to bother to explain sports. I'm just saying, yeah, we think there's a market there. Mm. But I was very determined to build those and play them myself. Mm. And so this was uh, true in the very beginning. And it led to the, uh, the launch of uh, the first sports game in October of 1983, which was Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. So that was a basketball game. And then there were some other early sports games like World Tour Golf. And you know that we had we had we had uh, an automobile racing game pretty early. Uh, we uh, uh, didn't have any league licenses back in those days. Uh, that would come, frankly, much later. But after the initial success of some of those games, that's when I started thinking, okay, now I'm ready to take on team sports. Yeah. And in the mid '80s, uh, I became the uh, first true acolyte that believed in the Commodore Amiga. And, and I was willing to bet heavily on it. In fact, I went so far as to try to convince Apple to acquire Amiga. Oh, wow. And, of course, that didn't happen. Instead, they ended up selling the company to Commodore, which uh, didn't work out so well. No. But uh, I really loved the Amiga, and I appreciated that it was a legitimate 16-bit architecture, that it had the, the kinds of resources, including you know, graphics processing and sound capability, color graphics, mm. you know, that would allow us to make the kind of games we wanted to make. And again, for me, uh, it, it, would, it, was, it would allow us to make great sports games. 
but it also allowed breakthrough games in a lot of other categories. And for example, we were able to take Marvel Madness, the arcade game, and it was very straightforward for us to bring that to the Amiga. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, European gamers of the right age range that remember uh, what a, what an amazing thing it was to say. It's not just that you can play Marvel Madness on a game on a platform like the Amiga or the Atari ST, but it pretty much looks and plays like the arcade version. Even though that arcade version, again, you adjust for inflation, that was probably a twenty thousand dollar cabinet game. <laughs> well, so I, the Amiga was yeah. a little breakthrough, and, and of course, it was tragic that it didn't really survive and take over. But we built a lot of great games on that platform. Of course, uh, we, we did this with help from brilliant European developers and Bulldog and Populous. Again, a real breakthrough game that was uh, uh, initially came out in the Amiga and then was one of the uh, first uh, Sega Mega Drive games that we sold. But that's, that's why the uh, Mega Drive meant a lot to me. Because, uh, I, I, I like the Amiga because it had a Motorola MC68000 16-bit microprocessor in it. Of course, I was very familiar with that processor because we used it at Apple, and it was in early graphics workstations like the Sun workstations. It was used in the arcade game industry. Mm. And when Amiga came along, it's like, here, we're going to use this, and we're going to have these other coprocessors to do a, a, a stronger multimedia job. Of course I would want that, and I would understand it. And so then when the Mega Drive comes along, and I realize, dang, it's basically an Amiga for $200. Yep. And wow, uh, not <laughs> just that, but it had two joystick ports and it came with two joysticks. So I'm thinking this is the, this is the birth of serious social gaming. And I really cared about that again from the beginning because you know what I grew up doing was sitting in a room with friends playing games together mm. and not really wanting to just do it all by myself, but have the dynamic of a live, opponent and uh, my favorite machine before the amiga was the atari 800 not very many of these sold but that thing had four joystick ports wow <laughs> and so we were able in the very beginning to make these breakthrough games like mule that was designed for four players and it was a much more fun game if you had four play four players right on the screen playing that game mm -hmm. and then of course uh, atari failed and we had to move that game to platforms like the commodore 64 that only had two joystick ports and they only sold you one when you bought the machine. And then we even you know, had to sometimes put products on the Apple II, which could only accommodate one joystick, which was really annoying. Yeah. Same thing with the uh, PC, the IBM PC and all the clones in the 1980s. So it was all very frustrating from a hardware standpoint until the Mega Drive. And here you've got this affordable machine that's, uh, that's got some graphics coprocessing and its own sound chip, and it comes with two joysticks, and dang... We're going to finally be able to make EA Sports a big deal, make social gaming a big deal, and reach an enormous audience. Oh, brilliant. That's oh, trip. I really appreciate that. I, I'm a huge fan of the Amiga, like you're saying. Um, you guys obviously work closely with Bullfrog and like Westwood Studios and so forth. And actually, I think you, 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 you later went on to actually take some of them over. How was that a conscious effort and also slightly tough question? But do you feel a bit sorry that some of these companies aren't around today? Well, uh, the way it evolved is that in the very beginning at EA, every software developer was just working pretty much by themselves, doing everything themselves. So like Bill Budge 
in pinball construction said it's sufficiently primitive that he could just do it himself. And the machines were so limited that having a brilliant artist wasn't going to overcome the really basic you know, limitations of the color palette and the pixel resolution. Everything was going to end up looking kind of abstract no matter what you did. But uh, uh, there were, in the early days, a couple of teams that had as many as two or three different people. And you started to sometimes have you know, professional artists that were part of a team. But they're, again, very small teams all working remotely, kind of like we were operating like a music label or a book publisher. We're the publisher and we're gonna support them and give them tools and give them a lot of editorial guidance and design help. But we're, uh, we're not actually controlling the engineering. There, there were cases where if a project wasn't going well and it was a small team, we would ask them to move into our office so that we could help them and keep an eye on things. But uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, worked at home. They were in uh, remote locations, you know, et cetera. But then, as it moved into 16-bit, the team sizes got bigger. It's it had to become more specialized, and we started doing more 3D graphics. So you needed the kinds of computer scientists that were well trained in math that could do 3D matrix transforms. Great enough engineers that they could still basically do assembly code when it was necessary, or be really good at uh, programming in a language like C++ and getting it close to the metal and squeezing all the performance out of it that you, you could get because everybody's fighting to get the higher frame rate, the better looking, the more detailed 3D models, you know, et cetera. And then, you still, and then by that time, okay, now you need professional artists. You need some professional sound and music people. The team's going to get bigger. And we wanted to grow faster than what the third-party supply of outside artists could provide. And we were developing some of our own ideas. And for a while, we tried to get, we had, an, we would have an idea like Road Rash. Mm. And we would think, why don't we find an outside developer to do it? And eventually it was like, you know, we can't really, we don't have the right outside developer that is the perfect fit for this. Why don't we just hire and build the team ourselves? And we, we would end up doing that, you know, an ad hoc basis for a while. And then it became clear that, you know, this is just a good idea. We'll, we'll be able to put more products through our expensive, costly sales effort take on more of this burden ourselves and it, it just makes sense. So it's not like we really preferred one thing or another. We just wanted to grow mm -hmm. capacity. And, you know, if, if you've got an expensive operational apparatus for getting the products to market, you want to flow as much product as you can through that pipe and you'll take product from different. We made distribution deals. Mm -hmm. We acquired companies. We uh, use outside artists. We used inside developers and build studios. And so we were doing all of the above. Yeah, you had definitely had your fingers in loads of pies. I mean, it must have been quite hard to juggle, but it was very successful. Thank you. Yeah. It was. Um, it, it, it was, again, one of those uh, uh, overnight successes taking 10 years. <laughs> trip. Um, I want to talk about the 3DO soon, but before that, this is um, – I, I mean, you, you're not involved with Electronic Arts right now or, or EA, as they're probably maybe better known. But I'd love to know what you currently think of the current Electronic Arts and – and there's been a bit of like uh, controversy about maybe treating customers a little bit poorly with loot boxes, microtransactions. Again, it's a pretty tough question for you, I'm sure. But what, what do you think of the current electronic arts in your view? Yeah, you know, obviously uh, a lot of time has passed and there have been a number of technology generations and cycles, a lot of expectation on different platforms. It's a 
really different industry today because it's fully global. Products get launched globally. There are customers playing games everywhere. There are billions of devices out there, PCs, consoles, smartphones, and everywhere you go. You know, if a kid is born anywhere on the planet, by the time he gets into school, you know, five or six years later, there's going to be a PC somewhere in that school. Uh, not too long after that, they're going to be able to start getting their hands on their parents' phone. Mm. Not too long after that, these days, they're going to get their own phone or their own uh, device of some other kind. So we're dealing now with a true mass market where there's billions of customers. And of course, the business model has shifted quite dramatically, particularly as the platform has become digital. Mm. And I don't have any doubt about this, but you know, for the last decade, the, the real growth in the last decade has been on the mobile side and, and the internet side. And the, obviously the sweet spot there is the mobile internet in combination. Mm. And uh, you can even look at today a, a game like Fortnite. Yeah, the, the best players are not playing on a mobile device, but uh, having a free mobile app that introduces men, women, and children to the game, it has dramatically helped expand their audience. And I think uh, there's a virtuous cycle there where a lot of customers are invited by friends to play a game like Fortnite. They try it on mobile, and then they realize they're on the same map getting their ass kicked by somebody <laughs> on an Xbox. Yeah. And they think Xbox. So I think we're actually... Not only creating this much larger market, we're in fact introducing a lot more young people to the excitement of games and having them decide that it's the most important medium that they're going to care for for the rest of their life. Whereas in prior generations, maybe that was radio. Maybe that was uh, going to the movies in a real theater. Maybe it was watching uh, color television. Maybe it was reading books. But, uh, oh, and then, of course, uh, as uh, sports became mainstream, particularly on television, sports became an enormous uh, industry. And those sports are now uh, slowing down and losing the youth market because the youth market is so much more interested in video games. And it's giving birth to things like esports, which yep. is approaching a billion dollars in size itself. So it, these are all very exciting changes. But it completely changes the competitive requirements. And with mobile being the vanguard of where it's going, it's very clear now that if you want to be successful, create your own IP, start it out free to play, and then figure out a way to get paid by some other means and asking for money up front. Mm. And, of course, there's major branches of this. Uh, there's, of course, a very interesting market that has to do with being the Netflix for games that maybe maybe is a cloud-based service where your customers have access to a catalog and they're paying a monthly subscription fee, that's an exciting new opportunity. And then you've got uh, the uh, success of games like Fortnite where they're making plenty of money because it's a social game. And it's important to note that part of Fortnite's success is that they're not taking themselves seriously. They're not trying to be an authentic, hardcore military shooter. Mm. Yes, in the game, you have to kill the other players, but it's really just a big party and it makes fun of itself. It's kind of a parody of a shooter in the same way that James Bond is a parody of spy movies mm. or spies. And as a kid, I fell in love with James Bond, still maybe one of the biggest heroes I've ever had. And I didn't know as a kid that it wasn't realistic. I didn't care. I thought it was really cool. Right. Yeah. 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 
So there's a lot of kids playing Fortnite that probably think, yeah, this is a real shooter. This is what a shooter is. Well, no, it really isn't. It's a more interesting game because of the way you can collaborate, the way you can build things, and the different strategies and tactics for dealing with the shrinking and movement of the storm, and the fact that it's a fundamentally social game where your friends, you're making, you know, Fortnite friends. And, you know, there's always a new game and there's no shame in dying. And, uh, you know, I, I watch people play Fortnite where uh, if they've got a group of four and it, just in the beginning, one of them has a mishap and gets gets killed. The others will just kill themselves and they'll start a new game. Mm. You know, so there's, there's no stigma about dying in that game. So th- these are all lessons about how to reach this bigger mass market. Uh, they're not all going to be hardcore gamers, but the hardcore gamers are the ones that drive the revenue. And of course, Fortnite can make money just selling cosmetic and fashion items and not really having it change the gameplay. But the hardcore gamer, the guy that, it, that traditionally would buy the box games uh, up front and spend hundreds of hours grinding to uh, win the game and get their character to the highest levels, you know, that's not a very uh, financially efficient model mm. because it's a pretty small uh, market for that kind of hardcore player. And you can only get a couple hundred bucks a year from that customer, even though they're getting thousands of dollars of value out of it, as evidenced by the, all the time they're putting into it. So the whole idea of a virtual goods economy, where you're, in fact, allowing a hardcore gamer that uh, isn't just going down to the basement for 50 hours over this weekend because they look, they're still in school. Mm. Uh, now that uh, older gamer... Uh, they've got a spouse, they've got a kid, they've got two kids, they're pretty busy. Mm. So being able to have these be mobile games where you can sneak in a short play session when you're not at home and to be cross-platform games where when you are at home, you're on your console or your PC, playing at a more advanced level, engaging with a global audience. You know, there's just uh, tremendous power here, but uh, these guys don't have the time to do the grinding that they used to do. And I, I think in the long run, you just have to accept that Virtual goods economies are going to win out. Mm. And this is the biggest challenge for game companies is getting good at the gameplay design that incorporates virtual goods in a fundamental way. The the traditional legacy players and companies tend to think of this as a bad thing. They they have a pejorative term for it, calling it pay to win. Mm. So don't do that. Don't ruin the game by making it pay to win. That's really just this small vocal segment of the market saying, we want to dominate the game through growth. And we don't want to have to pay more than 60 bucks. So please don't change it so somebody can spend $20,000 and dominate me. Yeah. But uh, I think this is just a reality that the industry is going to move in this direction. And plenty of hardcore gamers have let go of it and have decided to go with the got their mobile devices. They're on the Internet. They're enjoying the social value. And they're saving a lot of time that they never really had anymore. You know, the time is shrinking by spending some money to you know, speed up uh, mm. the time it takes to build things and unlocking things. The, the uh, challenge for the industry is in doing that kind of design correctly, instead of resorting to simpler tricks like loot boxes, there's a number of issues with loot boxes we don't have time to go into, but they, they're all well-documented. Yeah. I oh, appreciate your answer, Trip. definitely. Um, I know there's not much time left for interview, but I've, before we go, I've got to quickly ask you about the 3DO console. Uh, I've recently played it. It's been uh, my, my friend Keith, another Arcade Tech member, has, has now got the console. How 
did you come up with the idea of moving away from software or moving away from electronic arts and getting into a 3DO? And what was your initial ideas for the console and how did that all span out in your eyes? Yeah, you know, uh, in the in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s, uh, EA was a pretty powerful company and I was a pretty powerful person in the industry. And so I had access to everybody. And I did kind of a global tour talking to every company that either was involved in the hardware space or could be involved in the hardware space mm. it was very disappointing. You know, I had done uh, a very radical thing with the Mega Drive in leading the company to reverse engineer the platform so that we could operate with freedom and not have to pay uh, a, a ridiculously high license fee and a ridiculous licensing program that would really tie us down and, you know, take control of our business away from us. And, and that was a pretty risky endeavor. We, we managed to pull it off because there was some incredible execution by a lot of heroes in the company. And, and that was all kind of in place by 1990 when we launched uh, our first uh, Mega Drive games like Populous. But it, I realized I was living on borrowed time that, that uh, all of the hardware companies were going to see what we had done. And they were going to think, well, let's close that back door. Let's make sure that Trip can't do that again. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be a great four or five year run, but then we're going to be back to the same position where our lack of, of influence and control over hardware and its features, models and licenses uh, could really hurt the company. And I went around and I, I was talking to everybody and I realized, dang, uh, there isn't anybody doing the right thing. And by the way, I even talked to Sony and Sony pretty much made it sound like they weren't doing anything. Because uh. it really started yet. And, and then even in some later conversations with Sony after 3DO had started, they actually considered joining forces with 3DO and then decided not to because by then they had already started working on the design. They were still, I would say, three, four years away from really being in broad distribution of the PlayStation. Mm. Uh, so they actually really did debate whether or not they should continue with this thing that would take three, you know, four or five years or join forces with 3DO. Mm. But uh, uh, when I did that global tour, nobody was doing anything, but I could tell that there were some really big manufacturing companies that were very strong brands in consumer electronics, including the world's largest consumer electronics company, Matsushita. And Matsushita had, you know, pioneered VHS video they had pioneered other media markets. Uh, they had big brands like Panasonic, and they were uh, the biggest manufacturer of CD-ROM drives. I mean, they had a lot going for them. I'm pretty sure I can create strategic, strategic partnerships with these guys and with some other big media companies involved in, in Hollywood, et cetera. And I was right about that. And I thought, hey, we can uh, put a platform together on our own. And, and, and of course, 3DO, uh, then uh, to raise more money, we went public really early. We were kind of a company before dot-com, mm. and we went public in 1983 and raised $50 million. So, so at that point, you know, we had total resources of maybe $100, $100 million. And then Sony shows up not too long after that, and they invested $2 billion. Incredible. <laughs> and they had a better machine because they were developing their custom chips with a two-year lag from what we had to work with. 
and you know Moore's law was was giving them an advantage with their chips. Plus, they knew that they were going to drive enough volume that they could drive down the cost of the chips and drive down the cost of the CD-ROM drives. And then uh, uh, what what also put some wind at their back is that right after they announced the uh, uh, the launch price of the PlayStation, literally a few weeks later, there was a big shift in pricing of semiconductor memory, RAM memory, and and it totally made for Sony because they could put more memory in the machine and have it actually be cheaper and affordable at the two ninety nine launch price point. But it, when they launched that, uh, when they announced that price, I was in the room at the uh, E three show where they in uh, I guess this was in. Uh, 1995, I believe, when they were coming to the U.S. market, everybody thought the product would be priced between $400 and $500 like mm-hmm. it was in Japan. And Steve Ray said $299, and there was just this gasp in the room. And then Howard Lincoln, the, the head of Nintendo, said, I hope your shareholders like that. And he, he just thought it was ridiculous. He, he, mm-hmm. he absolutely believed you're going to lose your ass and your shareholders are going to get really pissed at you later. <laughs> you're making a big mistake. And, and then uh, they were bailed out by the fact that they were able to do enough volume quickly enough and memory prices suddenly went the other way. What happened is that the PC industry had been eating up all the memory, driving the prices up. Yeah. And in the PC market, you could afford those higher prices and pass those costs on to business users. And of course, when, when there's too much demand for chips, companies will invest in new foundries and expand capacity, but it takes some time for the capacity to come online. And it had just come online and when you have but not the demand, you lower prices. Mm. And so in one day, not long after uh, the Sony price announcement, the price of RAM dropped from $20 per megabyte to $8 per megabyte. And that, that uh, basically allowed, justified by itself, the $100 uh, price difference that made $299 possible for Sony. Anyway, after that, uh, pretty much the die was cast and 3 just didn't have the resources to uh, establish any kind of a meaningful position. Sony had such a strong brand. They were making such a big commitment. Mm. They, they built a really fabulous product. We didn't have the money to keep up with them. Our partners didn't have the incentives uh, and, and control over the business to be a loss leader the way Sony was prepared to. And of course, all the great games that got built for 3DO, including Madden Football, FIFA, Road Rash from EA. Those are just the EA examples of plenty of other games from other companies. They were all going to get ported to the Sony PlayStation. So we weren't going to end up having any kind of a distinctive uh, advantage. Oh, true. I appreciate the honesty there. Um, I know you're really busy. I've got a quick, couple of quick questions. How do you sort of reflect back on your career and what do you think is your personal highlight, your, your biggest achievement? I know you've had such a varied career, but where would you, how would you reflect? Well, it's funny. My favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. And I'm such a fanboy of the real Lawrence and the film that I have visited around 10 of the actual places where that history took place. And I've also visited another 10 was shot, which are not the same as where the real story took place. (laughs) So for example, they did a lot of filming in Spain and I've been to a lot of these places where uh, important scenes took place. And I'm just infatuated with that film. And 
uh, that film resonated with me when I was a child and it first won Academy Awards. And I was at my grandmother's house listening to the song play again and again. And I was just really fascinated, caught up in it. And from the very first time I saw the film, something resonated really deep within me. And it's, you know, part of it has to do with uh, my own confusion about my own identity, the same issues that, not, not for me, the same as Steve Jobs, but I, I referred to that earlier. Mm. It's a really big thing in life to figure ourselves out. It's ultimately going to be your biggest triumph if you dig to the bottom of your identity and you heal yourself and become the best version of yourself. Mm. That's the difference between achieving your destiny or being stuck with your fate. And... I got that feeling out of Lawrence of Arabia. Here's this story where I, I so many scenes in that film. And of course it doesn't have a happy ending. The guy ends up dead, but he's still a great hero. And you know, for me, I totally related to what he did in taking Aqaba mm. by figuring out this ingenious plan, the opposite of what anybody expected and doing the impossible. And of course, when he suggested it, it required him to be a bit of a rebel going against what his uh, British government military bosses were telling him to do or not do. Yep. And he was, a, he was a rebel and a rule breaker and a brilliant strategist, and he was unbelievably determined and tough. And again, these are qualities that resonate with me, and, and uh, particularly just strategic insight. Uh, when he had that idea about uh, taking Aqaba from the rear and crossing a very difficult desert to get there, even the Arabs are saying, uh, the nafud cannot be crossed. It is written. <laughs> and he's saying, nothing is written unless you write it yourself. You know, and, and man, I just eat that stuff up. Mm. <laughs> so look, I've always been around that mentality. I, I shared it with people like Steve Jobs and other uh, great entrepreneurs that I've, I've gotten a chance to work around uh, and, and uh, have as business partners. And it's that, that kind of hero that's kind of always driven me. And at the same time, you've got to take care of yourself to make sure you don't become a martyr. And it's very easy for all people to get in their own way, be their own worst enemy, and in some cases commit outright acts of sabotage mm. in that film, Lawrence of Arabia, like his little trip into Dara, where he gets arrested by the Turks. So these are real parts of ourselves that we have to work out. And I look at my life and my career, I realize that, yeah, you know, uh, I had some brokenness that interfered with my ability to perform as an executive and even as a human the first, first 20 years of my career. And it led to me getting into situations where I was trying to be too ambitious, wasn't listening, wasn't really looking at, it, at things objectively, was too... Uh, much of a megalomaniac, if you will, about being determined to try to do the impossible and feeling like it was not acceptable if I didn't continue to do the impossible. And that's just not a very healthy way to be. Mm. So, you know, I had a lot of success for 20, 25 years, and then I had a lot of failure for another 20 years. And during that process of struggling, that's when I realized that I just really needed to rebuild myself as a person. And that's really what I'm the most pleased about in my is uh, all the things that I've learned in the last 20 years, the learnings about myself personally that came out of the challenges and the struggles and what I was able to do to transform myself and my attitude. And again, it's, it's a vivid contrast with uh, untimely demise. 
and I'm really not trying to suggest something scientific here, but there are plenty of people that think that the way he thought about life and approached life and conducted his life may have induced his own cancer. I, I have plenty of people that have said that to me. Mm. I'm not going to really comment on the uh, there being a scientific basis for that or not. But, you know, he left us far too early and uh, he was far too miserable. That's all I know mm. from uh, my, my relationship with Steve. And, and I'm glad that even though I struggled and didn't achieve victory in every battle that I fought in my career, I'm much happier today than I, I used to be. And that's a that's a huge triumph. And that's something for all of us to shoot for. I really, Tripp, I really appreciate that. Such a great answer. Thank you. That, that's very quite a powerful message. So I really do appreciate just not just your time today, but just the way you finished it up. Um, I, I'm going to completely twist it on the head. I, I ask all my guests this final question. It's all a bit, a bit silly. Nothing, you know, it's all a bit silly. But if you could share a few drinks of any video game character, who would you choose and why? Oh, that, what, a, what a great question. You know, it's like the first name that pops in my head is uh, Mario. Yeah. 100%. But uh, I actually, uh, upon further thought, um, I'm not really that kind of gamer. And I'm not even completely sure if he only speaks Italian or Japanese and isn't very fluent in English. I'm one of these lazy Americans that doesn't know any other language. So with a little deeper thought, I guess I would have to go with uh, Julius Irving. So also known as Dr. J, he was one of the top couple of most famous athletes in the world uh, around 1980. Mm. And, and I, you know, I, I started pursuing him uh, early at EA a couple of years later, and he became the uh, first athlete, the first celebrity of any kind to appear in a video game. And it was a real joy to work with him. He's a real class act as a human being. He, he really was the ambassador for basketball. And, and it was just a, uh, a real hero for me and a real source of inspiration. And I haven't seen him in a long time. And, you know, it'd be a, a lot of fun to sit down and chat with him for a few hours. And I feel the same way about John Madden. And yeah. uh, of course, uh, he's still around and maybe I will bump into him again. But these are really brilliant people that, you know, aren't really known for uh, how smart uh, they're better known as football coaches or mm. or athletes. But they're really, really smart people, great leaders, you know, big thinkers that really had an impact on my life from having a chance to uh, interact with them. Oh, Trip. You know, I've generally really enjoyed this chat. It's been it's been brilliant, in fact. And I know our listeners are going to love this. So thank you so much for your time. Today. I honestly mean that. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK, at Keith Barlow 82 and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.